Hey guys, if you feel so inclined, we are looking for topics. What we'd like for you to do is rate us five stars and pitch us a topic. We'll shout you out and your topic on the next episode. And if we use your topic on an actual series, we will give you full credit for pitching it, not for doing the research. We're going to be doing the research. Right, Seth? Yeah. Please give us topics. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's a scam to get topics and ratings. (laughs) We are out of ideas. (laughs) (laughs) No, don't tell them that. (laughs) On today's episode... Universal basic income. The death of the proletariat. And what will it mean to be human when automation leads to mass unemployment? With Sue Ellen Stone filling in for Seth Lauer. Yeah, yeah. I would say I'm definitely most interested in the worthless areas. Yeah. yeah. Welcome to What's My Thesis, a wardrobe of clashing ideas. I'm Javier Proenza, and Seth Lauer is out of town today, but we're still Los Angeles-based artists who meet every week to share the answers we found to the questions we have. Join us as we explore and expand our worldviews through research and ask, what's my thesis? All right, so today, Seth is out of town, so I've arranged to have a guest who works at a, a an undisclosed big deal gallery. Can I say it's international? Sure. Okay. And, and she's definitely, this is Sue Ellen Stone. How are you doing, Sue Ellen? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm very glad to have you on the show. We've uh, known each other briefly, but I think uh, I've always been very impressed with your art knowledge. <laughs> like when I was trying to convince you to come on the show, I was like, "Dude, you're not gonna you're not gonna look dumber than me." <laughs> uh, we'll see. But yeah, where is Seth? Seth, is I actually don't know, I, but he's testing fruit somewhere for sure. Really? Yeah, I imagine because yeah. he's going with testing, his wife. Right, yes, right, right. Or trying. They're at or, the local market. Yeah, and uh, I just realized how sad it is that. That I don't know <laughs> what he's doing. He could be having like durian or something. Durian? What's yeah, that? Yeah, it's the stinky foot fruit. You guys didn't talk about that. Oh, you no. You didn't get into that? No. Are yeah. you also a it fruit It smells connoisseur? like rotten socks, Oof. but it's kind of delicious. That's... They would have to be far away, though, to be testing durian, so... Where's Where do you get durian? Uh, Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia? No, you can buy it in the supermarkets in LA, for sure. You can get okay. it right here, right in your neighborhood. All right. <laughs> in my neighborhood? Are yeah. you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. All right. I still don't know what this fruit is. Okay. But I'm sure if I, I'm sure I could smell it if I walked past it. Only if it's cut open. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's really appetizing. <laughs> <laughs> I've had it in ice cream and desserts. It's actually really? quite, yeah. Have you ever I, had ice cream fruit? Yes. Actually, I was very disappointed that you didn't know what a chermoya was when <laughs> you guys did that episode. I was like, what is wrong with this guy? You've lived in California for a long time. Yeah. You should know what one is. I should. Anything else you'd like to share? Someone sent me a picture recently at Home Depot of 
cacti that are dyed like bright purple, hot pink, green, blue, all these crazy rainbow colors. Yes, but it's permanent. And it says it's all natural, but it's permanent. But I don't know why we need to do this. Yeah. I don't know. That seems really Do we really need to dye our cactus and our plants? No. Is it not beautiful enough on on its own? Yeah. I mean, my garden's not doing too well, but I don't know if you saw it on the way in. It's a Mm. little scraggly. Yeah. Yeah, I need to take better care of them, but mm. <clears throat> but I'm trying, you know. I think it's one of those things that... Don't, don't they tell people in AA that they have to, like, keep a plant? Or was that just from the Sandra Bullock movie, 28 Days? I don't know either. Oh. AA, nor Sandra Bullock. She maybe. had a weird movie where there was, like, some kind of therapy with a horse involved and all these things. Hmm. Yeah. A lot of people I work with go on elephant... Uh, missions for like a leave of absence that I oh, think really? is a little bit, you know, like stress related. But it seems like everybody goes to work with elephants. Really? Yeah. yeah I Well, I dated... <laughs> this is a th- I would like to do this. I'm going to put in my notice for a leave of absence. For, well, you do some wild stuff. We went, we, went, we went and had lunch the other day and I was so excited because I don't have any tattoos, but Sue Ellen just wanted to like, she was straight up like, oh yeah, I'm going to go get a flash tattoo today. It was Friday the 13th, $20 special tattoos. <laughs> Tell them how long the line was, though. <laughs> oh, like hours and hours. So yeah. we put our name on a list and kept coming back. Nice. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Nice. And then my done. friend and I got very, like, janky, terrible yeah. tattoos. But it's all about the experience. It's not, not the, terrible. Not the end product. Those the, uh, Your tattoos are pretty awesome. You got a tooth and sort of a dandelion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're, I'm looking at the tooth right now. A dandelion. A dandelion? (laughs) How do you say? I just like dandelion. I'm a dandy. (laughs) You know I had a British accent when I was a little kid, right? Really? Yeah. I had a thick British accent. Why? Because I went to a British school instead of an American one in in Italy. Oh, really? There were some kids that that went to, like, there's AOSR, American Overseas School in Rome, and then there's... Maybe I shouldn't give too much information about <laughs> about my uh, my my upbringing in case, like you know, it's a uh... all your lady stalkers out there. No, I'm just worried about cybersecurity. <laughs> 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 but but yeah, there's a lot of them. There's and so it's a pretty big international community of kids that speak English. I left unfortunately before. I was old enough to go and be a part of the underage drinking, which is not underage drinking over there. Mm-hmm. But like I would visit and see these kids. One of my friends tells me that we or he had and my dad worked in the same place that we had uh, diplomatic immunity. So they would just be dicks to the cops. Although I'm not so sure about that because I also know some stories of like people being very scared about the police uh, busting them and whatnot. I'm being so vague. I know a lot of criminals in Italy. Oh, like mafia? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, just Is a that bunch stereotyping? of no, just a bunch of UN brats that mm. like uh, had no boundaries. What is underage drinking called if you're not if it's not a thing? It's just, just called drinking. Juvenile delinquency. No, it's just going out to the bar because there's no drinking age or the drinking age is like super young. But is it like a thing that 10-year-olds just go no, and have wine? No, it's not 10-year-olds. Not- I'm <laughs> thinking like, you know, I don't think 10-year-olds really have acquired the taste for that. So what are you treating me to here tonight? Tortoise Creek? Yeah. 
<laughs> a wine I know a lot about. Why? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> uh, I told someone that you don't pour wine on wine, and they got really mad at me. You don't what? You don't pour wine on wine. That's like an Italian saying. I don't even know what does that's it mean. Real. Like you, you don't pour wine into a glass of wine that's already got wine in it. You don't pour wine on wine. But you let it go empty then. Yeah, and then you pour another glass. Oh, that's like the very opposite of what they do in Japan, for example, where you're ne- you're never supposed to let someone's glass go empty. Oh yeah, it's, but that's like more sake, right? Or, yeah, or, yeah, 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 yeah. Or beer. Yeah. Biru. Biru. That's such a, that's <laughs> always the best. But let me let me take a sip so that I can pour myself a new one. I think it has to do with aerating. I have no idea about anything. Mm. <laughs> mm. Wine comes from fruit. Do you know which fruit? One of your favorites, apparently. Grapes, yes. Yes, grapes. The whole idea is that we're sort of in this transition right now that is happening faster and faster where the idea of being a country and of being a nation state is sort of giving way to this um, sort of oligarchy. You're looking at me like, oh shit, is he going to get into conspiracy theory? (laughs) No, I'm looking at you like, maybe I should have researched something before coming in instead of trusting you're like, oh no, you're just coming in to speak with me about what I've researched. (laughs) No, this is is definitely a a show where one person teaches another one something and you have to trust us. (laughs) I'm very much putting myself into your hands because I know nothing about this. I I could totally go Alex Jones on you. Okay. right now and just like make it an Infowars conspiracy but I'm not I promise okay. Okay. but it's gonna sound a little conspiracy okay uh-huh. because I'm basically saying that there that we are like the national identity is dying and I'll give some support for this I'm not just like Haha! in the US in, in the world okay? the national identity of the entire planet the national all national identities are giving way okay okay right to this sort of globalized culture and we'll talk about why why that's happening we're going to talk about this guy's work later that's really important uh and really interesting and he's one of the biggest proponents of this uh idea you do you know what universal basic income is only in in title okay like in one sentence i could give you a very basic description all right i'll give you the wikipedia it's a new form of welfare basically everybody's entitled to a salary technically it's not welfare okay but we'll get into it for a long, long time, I don't know, because now Putin says that he has a nuclear engine, which is insane. That's some science fiction shit. Um, it's basically what Foundation, the the Isaac Asimov uh, science fiction novels are about. Do, are you familiar with Isaac Asimov? Not. Okay, so he's like this scientist that was also a science fiction writer. He wrote iRobot. And he oh, has this okay. series that's based on the fall of Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? And so it's a, it's, a, it's a society in the future that is kind of crumbling. And basically it's not unheard of, right? Historically, the way that the world has evolved or that, that, that societies have evolved is that it was the church and the city-state, right? Mm-hmm. And then that's where the source, centers of power were. Then it became 
the uh, merchant class gained power and the church lost power, right? Separation of church and the state. Slowly, that became a principle that people <laughs> valued. And then that's what gave rise to the nation state, this whole wealth building, because it started, it, like, economies became industrialized and whatnot, right? I mean, yes. I mean, kind of all over the place. But basically, um, there was the Cold War, and we sort of accepted that really what that was was that we were fighting proxy wars throughout the world, right? So instead of it being like a war where no fighting actually took place, it really was there were proxy wars. We were fighting to maintain our business interests, and that's sort of how we approach military action now right like we sort of accept it as a thing where we have to go and fight abroad without getting into too many specifics i mean we're technically in seven wars right now right, right. and so and i don't want to get too political and get down that but basically my point is that we sort of lost this idealism this like saccharine 1950s idea of america being a good place a sweet place uh, where we're the heroes that come in and save the day and now we've got you know the alt right isn't is feeling a little bit more entitled than it should <laughs> right right and okay. not just here yeah no right. internationally <laughs> right yeah. and so that's basically what we're going to be getting into but the main people that sort of pull our nation and uh, in different directions are the military industrial complex uh wall street silicon valley healthcare industry all of these organizations make deci decisions about how the country is going to be run mm -hmm. we don't necessarily have access to those communities right mm -hmm. because we don't have the the money or the influence right just basic politics right um is it, it, it let me know if i go too far into conspiracy <laughs> nra <laughs> nra yeah, yeah nra well nra is some people argue is a citizen's wing of the military industrial complex right because right. it's another way to make more money and that's a whole clusterfuck that we're not going to touch today <laughs> but the main idea that i want to get away get, get into is that these are the power centers right silicon valley and wall street and they don't necessarily all have the same values as we'll get into right because we're going to talk about universal basic income and that's the thing that's being promoted for reasons we'll discuss later uh by people in silicon valley which is like you said you called it welfare and that's sort of not a very um not a very correct term no it's it's not a very wall street way of looking at the world yeah right so like wall street doesn't want to give people money right because right. that comes from taxation we'll get into how how all of this works a little bit yeah okay but so, welfare is a very dirty word these days yeah right? absolutely but at the same time we have people like elon musk and uh mark zuckerberg who are pushing for this idea and we'll get into somebody that might surprise you as well that has talked about it hmm. okay this is a, a situation we're getting into where we're basically entering a period as important as the industrial revolution right because we're going to start getting into automation and things like that where jobs are just not going to be done by people anymore right and so society is going to have to find a new well i'm getting ahead of myself right all right even <clears throat> in art the whitney museum has an artificial intelligence 
Really? Art making? Presence now. That, really? Yeah, what, do they, yeah. what does it do? I don't know. I just saw it on Instagram last week. They're introducing <laughs> you to their new <laughs> person, their online presence that will introduce you to the museum. And mm. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. So from Wikipedia, Universal Basic Income, or UBI, it's also called just Basic Income, uh, is a form of social security in which all citizens or residents of the country receive a regular, unconditional sum of money, either from the government or some other public institution, independent of any other income. An unconditional income transfer that is considered insufficient to meet a person's basic needs or below the poverty line is sometimes called a partial basic income, while one at or greater than the level is sometimes called a full basic income. So you're getting money unconditionally. Mm-hmm. So even if you're rich, you'd be getting this money. Even if you're poor, everybody gets the same amount of money. Oh, really? Yes. Oh. So it's not welfare because you don't have to qualify for it. By being a citizen, you are automatically in the program. Right? Now, where does the money come from? And this is, again, from Wikipedia. Basic income systems that are financed by profits of publicly owned enterprises, often called social dividend, also known as a citizen's dividend, are major components of many proposed models of market socialism. So that's a market socialism model. Basic income schemes have also been promoted within the context of capitalist systems where they would be financed through various forms of taxation. So we got a socialist model that can use universal basic income and a capitalist model. One uses taxation, one uses publicly owned goods. So capital grants provided at the age of majority, so I guess that would be like when you come of age, right? Is that 18? Well, I guess Here. this this is 19, 1795 where oh. this where, where this dates back to. So these are the rules. These this basically has existed since Thomas Thomas Paine's Agrarian Justice of seventeen ninety five, uh, and it was paired with acid based egalitarianism. Uh, now let's talk a little bit about some of. Do you have any questions? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. I need to learn more before I have questions. No, I know, I know. It's a, it, it, so you know, it, this is one of those topics that's a little bit like Isaiah Berlin. Yeah. Uh, which is why I wanted you to ha- be here because you're an intelligent person because this is dense. <laughs> and so, yeah. I feel like I'm being tricked. I want to be on the fruit episode. <laughs> <laughs> this is a little bit fucked up. <laughs> okay. All right. So, Namibia is one of the examples that we're going to talk about. Some, from January 2008 to December 2009, it's a program that's organized by the Namibian Basic Income Grant Coalition, and it's funded by a German Protestant church, German Ministry for Cooperation. What do you think a German mis- ministry cooperation is? Just, I doesn't, have absolutely no Doesn't idea. that sound kind of like Orwellian and suspicious, though? <laughs> but why, yeah, why are they interested in this project? I don't know. Uh, and the German... Uh, and private German citizens and uh, Namibian citizens. Is this like missionary stuff? Like religious-based? Well, I just don't know. Like, German Ministry for Cooperation sounds like something the Americans might have made the Germans make <laughs> after the war, you know, or the Allies. Like, mm. 
you guys need a because we don't have anything like that <laughs> oh we have a lot of missionaries though no but we don't have a ministry a government ministry right, right, for right. cooperating <laughs> <laughs> so i just i i i always have my questions about how things work in germany i think it's fair it's fair uh so uh and basically the the grant is 12 dollars per person $12. Well, the cost of living is really low. So, with these $12 per person, what ended up happening is that it increased attendance in schools and reduced malnutrition in children, which is an important thing. It also it was also found to have increased the community's income significantly above the actual amount from the grants as it allowed citizens to partake in more productive economic activities. The project team stated that this increase in economic activity contradicts critics' claims that a basic income would lead to laziness and dependency. So what's interesting here is that they're taking this money and they're giving it to these people and it's, and it raises them to a point where they can... Um, here, I'll let you do that. It, it, it frees them up from having to do other things like struggle and then they end up making more money that goes beyond what the basic what, what they're given so people don't just live off of that they go out in search of other opportunities that having this funding provides them mm-hmm. which is a lot of times critics of this and in fact i just saw an ama on reddit about someone there's a new program i don't know the details on that in toronto that they tried to get uh or that the guy did an ama do you know what that is ask ask me anything so someone will go up and they'll be like hey i'm this guy ask me anything so this guy said hey i'm uh a participant in this pilot universal basic income program universal basic income is really popular on reddit it's like one of the things that gets very a lot of upvotes but so I went and I tried to read it and it was just like people shitting on this guy. It's like, go get a job, you lazy motherfucker, and all of these things. And he was like, I'm an artist. This actually helps me a lot. And he's like, ah, oh, you know, so they were they were just like, I couldn't even read the AMA because it was just so much. And there's no really, there's no way to see what all these people who are being critical are yeah. actually doing with their lives. Yeah, it's just like basis. spiteful. So, yeah. so there is a lot of resistance to this idea there's it's like it's uh it's it's a very positive sense of freedom right this concept of people getting what they need whereas americans tend to think a lot more in negative sense of freedom which i can tell by your expression you haven't listened to isaiah berlin (laughs) (laughs) after the conclusion of the uh, pilot project phase a monthly bridging allowance of eighty dollars or of I don't know how what I, currency I don't know what currency is but for some reason I put n a at the dollar sign and 80 and then around ten dollars in American so they had a bridging allowance that was like two dollars less than what they were getting right and was paid regularly to all who participated in the pilot until March 2012 the program was only for residents who lived there within a certain time frame but people started to migrate to the area despite being ineligible. So 
what that tells me, this is a conclusion that I'm drawing, but I gu- I'm guessing that the quality of life just went up for everybody. Mm-hmm. And so the people that went to these places, even if they weren't eligible, I think the standard of living had come up, right? It's like people were able to invest in their houses and stuff like that. So it made it uh, a little bit of a more pleasant area. Um And so another finding of the project was that after the introduction of the pilot, overall crime rates fell by 42%, and specifically stock theft. And then all other theft fell by 20%. And that's interesting because if they're stealing, if it's bringing down the rates of stock theft, that's like people stealing food. Mm -hmm. So... You know that that that's like people stealing out of need. That's not people stealing because out of greed. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so or yeah, or just <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> oh, do you steal out of boredom? <laughs> when do, I was young, yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, these uh, conclusions were derived from two empirical studies conducted by the Basic Income Grant Coalition, which is also known as Big. Uh, in May 2012, the community leader of those two villages told a journalist of a Namibian newspaper, since two decades, we've, we are sitting here without work, development, and perspectives. The journalist concluded, despite the support of BIG, which is the coalition, there is not any development to be seen in the villages. So, despite having this, there is some level of dependency that comes from this right the it's not developing the community to pass a certain place right it's not it's not the same economic boost as sort of the older model of people coming in and bringing in jobs is this just a case study though why did the german ministry of cooperation i don't know pick Namibia. No, there are there are all these pilot projects, and I think isn't it, there one in Scandinavia too? There's but like they're it, everywhere. There's there's one in uh, in Oakland, and uh, these things are. This is we're going to talk about why these are becoming really important. But yeah, mm-hmm. um, it's sorry. Repeat your question. Why did they choose this particular okay. community? They um, in the German ministry. I would imagine that since the costs of living are cheaper Mm -hmm. it's easier to do over there than it is to do in germany where the cost of living because if you if we're doing 12 dollars per person like that's still pretty low if it's monthly or yearly it's not a lot of money but what about the one i'm you're saying they're all over the world but denmark finland those i mean that's quite a different situation well this is in 2012 i'm uh, saying these these are these are older projects right yeah so i would say this is probably i don't know maybe they did it out of guilt (laughs) but why are you focusing on this one in particular because it was was on wikipedia when i did the research (laughs) yeah you got me busted busted (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah Macau's in China, correct? Yeah. Okay. Is it? We can cut it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Macau's another program, and it has distributed funds to all residents, permanent and non-permanent, since 2008 as part of the region's wealth partaking scheme. I love, like, scheme has such a negative connotation. I love the idea of just, like, uh, scheme 
But what about the non-permanent residents? Can we talk about these oh, dis- definitions of who well, receives it, this income? It distribute They distribute income to both permanent and non-permanent. So if you're just there temporarily. So you could just go and receive? Or? I'm guessing, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> and as part of the region... I just think this is an important distinction if we're going to be talking about this being in the United States or... Oh, well... It- we're, we'll get to the ideas for the United States. Okay, okay. Um, okay. Did Namibia also have permanent and non-permanent? No. Okay. That one was grand... Like, that one was... You had to be there for a certain time Okay, period. so only Macau. So far, are we so saying non-permanent? Yeah. Okay, okay. In 2014, the government distributed 9,000 patakas, which is approximately 1,127 to each permanent resident, and 5,400 patakas which is 676 to non-permanent residents. So if you're non-permanent, you get less, but you Mm -hmm. still get something. And um, I am not sure which kinds of examples. I I think that the next one is going to be a clearer example because Iran has – it was – According to Wikipedia, it was the first country to introduce a national basic income in autumn of 2010. But as you see, it kind of disagrees with the date for the 2009 in Namibia. Right. Right. If they're the first. If they're the first. So some, some of this Wikipedia stuff is not maybe the best, but the, some of the stuff that comes later is really solid as in, for, in terms of... Uh, uh, references so it's paid to all citizens and replaces the subsidies of petrol fuel and other supplies that the country had for decades in order to reduce inequality and poverty as of 2012 the sum corresponded to about 40 us dollars per person per month and 480 us dollars per year for a single individual and 2300 us dollars per year for a family of five people and this is the market socialism model right because you have the co- the country has its resources it used to be paid out as um a subsidy for the petrol and fuel but now it's just straight up universal basic income mm-hmm. and i can't, i'm not clear on what the distinction is because even in the u.s we have a system like that that we'll talk about um but belgium basically belgium is really the center of all of this stuff all of the all of these uh, examples come from, or not all of them necessarily, but the a lot of the citations from Wikipedia are to the Basic Income Earth Network, which used to be called the Basic Income European Network. It is a network of academics and activists interested in the idea of universal basic income based solely on citizenship and not on work requirement or charity. It serves as a link between individuals and groups committed to or interested in basic income and fosters informed discussion on topics throughout the world. Bien's website defines a basic income as a periodic cash payment unconditionally delivered to all on an individual basis without means, tests, or work requirements. Again, that's why it's not welfare. Um, And so basically this organization has two big names. And one is Philip Van Parijus. And then the other guy is Guy Standing. His name is Guy Standing. Guy Standing. But he is he's actually 
a badass. He's he's one of my my new heroes. So Philip Vampirigius in real freedom for all, what if anything can justify capitalism? So you can already tell <laughs> he's got a bit of a chip on his shoulder. <laughs> uh, in 1995, okay, so that's when that book was coming out. So this guy's been at it like before NAFTA, or I, when was NAFTA? I love how I asked you like you would know. <laughs> Early 90s? Was it earlier? I really don't know. Clinton was 92. Yeah. So anyway, well, it's all relevant. Okay. He argues for both the justice and feasibility of basic income for every citizen. Van Perigis asserts that it promotes the achievement of a real freedom to make choices. Again, this is a very positive sense of freedom, which comes from back when, like, you know, back when people lived in monarchies and freedom was not necessarily your freedom to be not interfered with by other people, but freedom was freedom to be able to eat and things like that, mm -hmm. right? For example, he purports that one cannot really choose to stay at home or to raise children or start a business if one cannot afford to. As proposed by Van Perigis, such freedom should be feasible through taxing the scarce-valued social good of jobs as a form of income redistribution. So he's just straight up for redistribution. Um, and another part of Vampirage's work, which makes me a little iffy on him to begin with, um, he's like maybe like the militant 15-year-old, you know, that's like, oh, this is how the world should be. So another part is uh, about linguistic justice. In order to address the injustice arising from the privilege enjoyed by English as a global lingua franca, he discusses a wide range of measures such as a language tax, which would be paid by English-speaking countries, a ban on the dubbing of films, and the enforcement of linguistic territorial territoriality principle that would protect weaker languages. So I, I see a lot of facial reactions. What are your thoughts on that? Where is this person from? <laughs> Uh, I think he's Belgian. Mm. <laughs> Are you for paying a tax just because you were born into an English-speaking country? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting point, but I'm not. I, 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 I'm glad that uh, we're both Republicans on this one. <laughs> mm. So, and his work is associated with this September group of analyt with a September group of analytic Marxism, though he is not himself a Marxist. So I guess his ideas maybe lean that way. Now we're going to talk about Guy Standing. I'm very excited to talk about okay. Guy Standing. <laughs> Just because his name? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've never seen him sitting down. <laughs> All right. So I need my other... I, my other... Uh, I couldn't... Uh, Your other source material? Yeah. This is the newer research. Okay, so basically Guy Standing talks about the precariat. And the precariat is a term coined by someone else, but he is applying it in a very specific way to reference a new group of people. It's a play on the term proletariat, which were people that sold their labor in return for money, right? Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So in the 1970s, a group of... This is his, the, the first, the very intro of his book. In the 1970s, a group of ideologically inspired economists captured the ears and minds of politicians. The central plank of their neoliberal model was that growth and development depended on market competitiveness. Everything should be done to maximize competition and competitiveness and to allow market principles to permeate all aspects of life. Does that seem like a world we're living in right now? It does. A little bit, right? <laughs> One theme was that countries should increase labor market flexibility, which came to mean an agenda for transferring risk and insecurity onto workers and their families. The result has been the creation of a global precariat consisting of many millions around the world without an anchor of stability. They're becoming a new dangerous class. They're prone to listen to ugly voices and use their votes and money to give those voices a political platform of increasing influence. The very success of the neoliberal agenda, embraced to a greater or lesser extent by the governments of all complexions, has created an incipient political monster. Action is needed before that monster comes to life. Okay? He's not talking about neoliberals being the monster that's coming to life. He's talking about the people that these, the open, flexible labor, like basically what he's saying is globalization made countries um, feel like they needed to make the job market competitive. He's basically talking about people who are vulnerable and are voting for demagoguery. Does that sound at all familiar? Very familiar. Yeah. It, does this remind you of any one particular human being that is in power right now? <laughs> <laughs> it does. I just want to know where you're... Where, where are we going with all of this? Universal basic income. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to shit on any one politician, if no, that's what you're worried no, 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 about. No, not shitting, but... Yeah. Um, what I am talking about is sort of... Because he's talking about this from a very... Uh, European standpoint, which yeah. I think is interesting, and also this book is from nineteen is from two thousand eleven. So all of this is even before the Occupy Wall Street movement, right? right. So he's going to start talking about uh, the Euro May Day, which is May Day is May first, which is coming up. Mm -hmm. It's a very important um, day that used to be Labor Day, but then they moved Labor Day to a different day so that it wouldn't be associated with the horrors of May, f May 1st yeah. of May Day, right? So Euro has a May Day protest. And so a lot of this is going to sound like I'm talking about Occupy Wall Street, but I'm actually talking about Euro Day, or he's actually talking about Euro Day, but it's something that keeps happening, right? It's a, it's, it's a move that's happening. So on Euro Day, the aging trade unionists were just completely taken aback by this new mass of people parading and it, because what they were parading for was free migration and universal basic income which had little to do with traditional unionism right they watched their parents generation conform to the fordist pattern of drab full-time jobs and subordination to industrial management and the dictates of capital fordist being the model that henry ford established with the uh, Model T and all of that, right? Um, so they don't have a clear agenda, 
but they're not protesting. The protest isn't to go back to laborism, right? So they don't, they're not, it's not like the people that vote for, uh, these protesters in particular are not the same people that would vote, would say, I voted for Trump because he's going to bring back coal jobs. These guys don't want back the old jobs. They want to exist in a new model, right? And it's a leftish libertarian movement, which is an interesting combination of words because you don't necessarily in America think of libertarianism as being a leftist. Le- yeah, right. it's very right-leaning, but, typically. Yeah, because it's been co-opted. But in reality, American Civil Liberties, or, or the ACLU, it's not the American Civil Liberties Union, it's the American Civil Libertarian Union. Mm. And so there's a lot of of interesting things that are that that I've learned while researching this stuff because instead of it being oh democrats are neoliberals now it's like oh okay yeah well these policies really have you know they though in terms in the political terms that are spoken it's oh they've we've lost the middle class but what's happened is actually something a little bit darker as a leftish libertarian movement even its most enthusiastic protagonists would admit that the demonstrations so far have been more theater than threat. More about asserting individuality and identity within a collective experience of precariousness. So right now, these protests, including um, Occupy Wall Street, are not defined, right? What was the complaint that people had about Occupy Wall Street? That they didn't have any goals, right? That there was no clear thing that they were arguing. Right. So what he is saying is that that's because this new class of people are just now getting themselves, getting a handle on what their situation is and where their lives are. But they don't necessarily have the solutions. So they're protesting for things like universal basic income. That's not happening here, but in Europe that's definitely happening, right? Basically, it's this is about pride in your precariousness, right? It, you have this identity of this insecurity that we're going to get into a little bit, right? Um, the main issue here is that you live in fear and insecurity. That's what makes you one of these protesters, right? Uh, just because you don't identify with Euro May Day, though, or the Occupy Wall Street protesters doesn't mean that you're not part of the precariat. So some of these people that are watching these protesters and don't necessarily get it, right? Or don't necessarily identify with what these people are asking for, like the Occupy Wall Street people, just because you don't, you look at them and you're like, ah, whatever, fuck them, doesn't mean that you're not also one of their, the precariat, right? Precariat are basically people that are floating rudderless and potentially angry and capable of veering to the extreme right or extreme left politically and backing populist demagoguery that plays on their fears and phobias. Does that sound familiar? This sounds like when I lived in Oakland. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I was just talking about President Trump. (laughs) I was was thinking more of like the Occupy movement in Oakland where you have all these outsiders coming in to the city who don't actually live there. Oh, really? And creating these major protests and disruptions. Were you in in, uh, Oakland at the time? I was. Oh, that that was... What years were those? Those were like 2000... I mean, this was... I lived there. I moved 2000... 14 
I guess. Yeah. So this is probably like the several years preceding that. Mm-hmm. But um, you have all these outsider anarchists coming into the city and yeah, claiming to the Occupy yeah. movement and shutting down freeways and creating major disruptions. Yeah, we did Occupy. Not really from the community. That, yeah, yeah. We did Occupy pretty well over here. It was just like a hippie party out front in in front of the. Uh... <laughs> you were part of the Occupy shutting down the freeways no. of Los Angeles. Oh, did they shut down freeways in Los Angeles? Yes. Oh, no. Oh, no, I, you weren't doing that. I wasn't doing that. Oh. No, I, I actually didn't know that it got that serious because I, <laughs> I only saw uh, I only saw what I saw. I wasn't like, because I'm not up to date on the news when that happened. <laughs> I just feel even talking about Occupy, though, this whole movement, it's so well, long ago. Well, you, oh. you, you know, there's a documentary called The Hacker Wars, which is really interesting. And I thought of doing an entire episode on it, but... I felt like weird because it would just be a retelling of the documentary. Mm-hmm. So I highly recommend it. But one of the things that they say is, I don't know if you remember, Anonymous was a big thing at that right. time. So what their, what that documentary says is that Occupy was started by the FBI because they already had Sabu as an informant. And so they got Sabu to get a bunch of people to whip everybody up into a frenzy and, you know, push for all these Occupy protests and all of that. So this was like, uh, according to that documentary, a thing that destroyed Anonymous, right? Because one of the things was that you lost a lot of trust and now nobody wants to get involved on on a big scale. So that really was a pretty big... uh, operation if that's the case right like if the fbi instigated these protests (laughs) to sort of like it gets a little conspiracy theorist but there's some interesting stuff in that documentary too there's one guy who goes to jail because he figured out that at&t um you can get into people's um at&t accounts simply by adding a number like let's say you you're you 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 go onto your website or your mm-hmm. or, or yeah on your or maybe it was for a bank i think it was at&t and then you have a user number if you add a number you're in another person's account to your url and then you add another number and so he figured that out and they busted him for telling people that there was a security flaw and he went to jail for it for any he, what he says is I went to jail for counting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's pretty sad. It's it's there's some fucking Orwellian shit going on all around us. And I <laughs> have AT and T. Oh yeah. Well, this. me too. Um, all right. So globalization's child. We're not going to spend too much time. I mean, I read the shit out of this book, and I really like it. But for the purposes of this episode, I don't want to dive too deep in because uh, it's a little depressing. <laughs> But um, you are depressing me. I have to tell you, it is not yeah. a fun. It, I'm, this is not I'm a fun episode. Down. Yeah, yeah. No, no. We our energy was so high on the check in. I know. And that, I'm, and like, I I'm just, feeling low on my intelligence. I'm feeling low on the no, state of your the universe. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all gone to hell. It's going to take an. It's going to take a happier turn. Okay, so because we're going to talk about Mark Zuckerberg next. Yes. <laughs> oh, and and Mark Zuckerberg before. Oh, it's in retrospect, it's going to be funny to listen to this. Okay. okay? All right. So, uh, 
basically he calls this he calls the precariat globalization's uh, child. And in the 1970s, an emboldened group of social economic thinkers, subsequently called neoliberals and libertarians, although the terms are not synonymous, realized that their views were being listened to after decades of neglect. Most were young enough to not have been scarred by the Great Depression or wedded to the social democratic agenda that had swept the mainstream after the Second World War. So after the Second World War, most of the world went social democratic. And all of this stuff for decades was not listened to, right? War was in 1945, 30 years, decades, as he says. Nobody was interested in this neoliberal, open, flexible labor market, libertarian. You know, he says that the terms are not synonymous, but they sort of both work together, right? Um, and after the Second World War, there were all these programs put in place. Just in, you know, just in America to begin with, we had the GI Bill, which helped people go to school. All of this is socialist programs, but democratic socialists, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I I don't know when Social Security was established, but these new thinkers, these li- neoliberals, they disliked the state's planning and regulatory apparatus. To them, the world was an increasingly open place where investment, employment, and income would flow to where conditions were most welcoming. They argued that unless European countries in particular, again, this is not an American century. It resonates with us, but it's not, he's not thinking in terms of American neoliberals and, uh, you know, he's thinking British, Europe, like all of that. Um, so he argued that unless European countries in particular rolled back the securities that had been built up since the Second World War for the industrial working class and the bureaucratic public sector, and unless trade unions were tamed, deindustrialization, which was a new concept at the time, uh, would accelerate, unemployment would rise, and m- economic growth would slow down. Investment would flow out and poverty would escalate. So it's all this alarmist idea that all these programs that are keeping people secure are going to lead to deindustrialization. That's not even a term that exists anymore because <laughs> industrialization has hit uh, a, a pace where we're going to hit the singularity soon. And they found the type of leaders that they were that were willing to accept their analysis in politicians like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Big heroes, right? Yeah. Fucking champions that people are they still love to this day, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Till death do them part. Yeah, not not at all uh, polarizing figures. The tragedy was that while their diagnosis made partial sense, the prognosis was callous. They were just completely insensitive. Like there was some reasoning behind it, but they just bought it wholesale. And over the next thirty years. The tragedy was compounded by the fact that the social democratic political parties that had built up the system the neoliberals wished to dismantle after briefly contesting the neoliberals' diagnosis subsequently lamely accepted both the diagnosis and prognosis. So all the people that had bought that had fought really hard to establish these social democratic structures bailed on us. They were just like, all right, whatever. They fought a little bit, they resisted, and then, so the Democratic Party would be one of those institutions, one of those parties, but there are those all over the world where it's these people that started to adopt this idea of the flexible labor market, which is what NAFTA is about, the TTPP, or the one that, the new one. (laughs) 
Do you know what that is? No. All the trade agreements. <laughs> Do you know what NAFTA is, right? Yes. Okay. So all the trade agreements that make it cheaper for companies to produce things, but make people more insecure. So if you look back at Ross Perot when he was saying, uh, that sound you hear is the sound of uh, jobs leaving. That sucking sound you hear is the sound of jobs leaving. He was right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, he was insane, <laughs> but he was right about that. Uh, and then one neoliberal claim, countries needed to pursue labor market flexibility. Otherwise, labor costs would rise and corporations would transfer production and investment to places where costs were lower. What these neoclassical economists proposed meant systematically making employees more insecure, which they said was necessary to keep jobs and investment. But that wasn't true because the jobs went anyway. Right. So they made people you know the labor force more insecure with the idea that they were trying to make their jobs more insecure more secure right so all the risk was basically tra- transferred onto citizens all issues were blamed on a lack of flexibility in labor markets so anytime something wasn't working they were just like oh the free market <laughs> right so all of the the you know all of the things that collective bargaining and all of that shit it all got deteriorated away through this process of this idea and again neoliberals okay is this too much yes you're <laughs> fucking killing me <laughs> why you're a neoliberal no i'm just i'm breaking your heart <laughs> a little bit always okay. but <laughs> all right and so As globalization proceeded and governments and corporations chased each other, making their labor relations more flexible, the number of people in insecure forms of labor multiplied. The policy changes generated a trend around the world that were never predicted by the neoliberals or the political leaders who were putting their policies into effect. So they were just, it's the same thing as the the banking thing, where it's just like, Oh, these theories, these 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 fucking great ideas and then like everybody gets fucked and they get rich. <laughs> <laughs> and so basically what he's saying, which I think is why it applies to the thing that I was saying uh about there we really are transitioning out of the idea of nation state, right? It used to be city state, then it was nation state. There's this thing, there's this book, are you familiar with Neil Stevenson? No. Okay, there's this really awesome sci-fi book, and it's the second one I mentioned today. <laughs> Fuck, I mean, you're quizzing me on sci-fi books now, too. I'm like, great. <laughs> no, I hate uh, you. So, <laughs> <laughs> so basically what he's saying, and this is a quote that I can't seem to find in what I wrote, but it, it was, it's, it's, an, it's of importance, is that class systems are breaking down within nations. This new class is a global class. At any point, anyone can fall into it. This precarious sense of living, which is defined by their inability to find steady employment and their inability to steady or uh, underemployment, that that level of insecurity is not just a financial one, but it's also psychological. It has a psychological impact on people. Mm-hmm. And so that's what leads into these situations where they start, where they become a dangerous new class where they vote for people like Trump. Okay. So I'm trying to sort of demystify, right? 
there's a lot of information that has little to do with, um, you know, what's it called? I mean, it's why Brexit happened as well, right? And so, right. and so, it's these these people are frustrated because they feel like they're being left out and they're not being spoken to. And right now, the whole idea of the book, The Precariat, is him saying that I want to take these symbols and move this movement from something that annoys the state to something that engages the state into a dialogue as as to what can happen. And he what he proposes is universal basic income. But now we're going to talk a little bit more pop culture and we're going to have fun because this guy is uh in deep shit. <laughs> Zuckerberg? Oh yeah. <laughs> Mr. Zucks. But I want to take you back to a time where he wasn't and he was all future and all potential and all bangs have you seen the hilarious memes about his haircut his new haircut well like while he's been giving his testimony yeah i've They're, seen some memes but no yeah. what, what what are they i just the girls are loving the ones about like his bangs like when you're drunk on two bottles of wine <laughs> and you take the scissors to your own bangs <laughs> <laughs> Every generation expands its definition of equality. Previous generations fought for the vote and civil rights. They had the New Deal and great society. And now it's time for our generation to define a new social contract. We should have a society that measures progress not just by economic metrics like GDP, but by how many of us have a role we find meaningful. We should explore ideas like universal basic income to make sure that everyone has a cushion to try new ideas. We're all going to change jobs and roles many times, so we need affordable childcare to get to work and healthcare that's not tied to just one employer. And we're all going to make mistakes. So we need a society that's less focused on locking us up and stigmatizing us when we do. And as our technology keeps on evolving, we need a society that is more focused on providing continuous education through our lives. How old is Mark Zuckerberg? Can we Google this yes, quickly? Yes, we can. We I would love to know. The, we have the, the technology. Zuckerberg age. Birth year. I went with age. One word. One word. You're a much better Google search researcher than I. Motherfucker, why did you make me do this? I'm so upset now. What? He's 33. Right now he's 33? <laughs> Jesus. So he's like a total millennial. Oh, deep, God. deep in it. Yeah. Sorry, I don't... I, I don't really want that on the air, like this old lady millennial hating. <laughs> oh, now that's all staying on. <laughs> oh, wait, you're the one who told me I'm actually not a millennial. What am I? In between millennial and Gen X. <laughs> it used to be Gen Y, right? Well, there's a term for exennials. The micro-generation oh, between Gen X. <laughs> Xennials? 
It's teens of the late 90s loved Cruel Intentions. <laughs> I did not love That's that the- movie. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone born between 77 and 85. Is that you? Yes, that's That is me, me as well. Anyone born between it's, these years will know this problem. These nine years are not enough to qualify as a separate generation, but many who were born in that time never quite feel like they belong. And they have every reason to think that. <laughs> a life in between is the caption. Yeah, we don't have the wherewithal to do it. The a- years of our birth lie between two huge generations. We had to bridge the divide between an analog childhood and digital adulthood, and we are reminded of this day after day. We live with one foot in Generation X and one in Generation Y. This is an uncomfortable position to keep up, and we aren't fond of it. But there is a simple solution. We can call ourselves a micro-generation. <laughs> we are not Gen Xers. We are not Millennials. We are in between. We are Xennials. X-E-N-N-I-A-L-S. I hate it, but I love it. Mm-hmm. You know why? Because it's so appropriate because X was like extreme corn chips, X games. X, like X was the word, was the letter of our generation for sure stop reading and react to me (laughs) i know i'm sorry i'm just i'm reading about us like the gen xers as children we played outdoors engaged in games we made ourselves a long time before the advent of gaming consoles we made macrame bracelets for our friends i don't know that that was macrame was it those bracelets the friendship bracelets that we made on the school bus technically did you make them on the school bus i have we wrote each other postcards it says yeah we couldn't coordinate meetups with friends by text, chat, or WhatsApp. We had to pick up our, the receiver, call their house, introduce ourselves to their parents, and persuade them to hand us to our friend. <laughs> I I had a swatch phone. Uh, you had a swatch phone? Did you? Yeah. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you do the slap bracelets? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but swatch phones were everything. This was like, if you had your own line, your own private line in your home with a swatch oh, yeah. phone so you could make three-way calls. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like that was, that was what baller. made you, Yeah. right? If you didn't have your own line, you were nothing. I know. Oh, it was used to be so horrible to have to call a girl and like talk to their parents. Yeah, because her girlfriend was probably also on the other end, on the third, on the headset, <laughs> which was the bottom set of the swatch phone, listening in and spying on you. <laughs> yes. My best friend and I, on our swatch phone, I had the receiver, she had the base. We called mm-hmm. into our local radio station and won tickets to Poison and Warrant. Poison, the band Poison? And, and Warrant, Warrant, the band. Yeah. Po- okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a tribute band no, that did both. No, 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 no. Together, one night only at Whoa. the Tucson Convention Center. That's amazing. Yeah. That's pretty fun. The Swatch, the Swatch phone was a serious <laughs> time. As so, we had pagers. So... 33 definitely wouldn't be accent. No, he is a total millennial. But what, so now I'm listening to him now. So let me ask you something. Okay. Um, does he sound like he has a different trajectory in mind for himself than getting than testifying before Congress in that clip? What does he sound like? Does he sound like a tech billionaire or does he... Uh... He sounds like a dictator. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say candidate, but yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, no, I mean, he's proposing really, I would say more of a candidate because he's proposing a little pipe dreamy stuff. Yeah, it's really optimistic. Yeah, it's and like... A bit, a little bit ridiculous and out of touch. Yeah, it's it's sort of like, um, we're not destroying the world, Silicon Valley. <laughs> we're going to fix it by proposing this thing that nobody else is proposing. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I just find it a little funny in the context of where he's at now to listen to this clip. I've had this clip for a while. Really? <laughs> when was this clip from? Uh, definitely not this year. I don't know. So he was like in his 20s. <laughs> no, really, he was when still... he made this speech. He's been 30 all his life. No. All right, let me play you another clip. There will be fewer and fewer jobs that a robot cannot do better. Okay. What to do about mass unemployment? This is going to be a massive social challenge. Um, and I think ultimately we will have to have some kind of universal basic income. I don't think we're going to have a choice. Universal basic Un- income. Universal basic income. I think it's going to be necessary. So it's mean that unemployed people will be paid across the globe. Yeah. Because there is no job. Machine, robot is taking over. Um, that, that's simply the, the... And I want to be clear that these, these are not... Uh, things that I think that I wish would happen. These are think, simply things that I think probably will happen. Um, and since, and if, they, if, if, if my assessment is correct and they probably will happen, then we need to say, what are we going to do about it? And I think some kind of a universal basic income is going to be necessary. Um, now, the output, the output of goods and services will be extremely high. Um, so with automation, um, they will, they will come abundance. Um, there will be, uh, almost everything will get very cheap. Um, the, uh, it's, so it, it's, I think the, the biggest, I think we'll just end up doing uh, universal basic income, it's gonna be necessary. Um, the, the, the harder challenge, much harder challenge is how do people then have meaning? Like a lot of people, they derive their meaning from their employment. So if you don't have, if, if you're not needed, if there's not a need for your labor, how do you, what's the meaning? Do you, do you have meaning? Do you feel useless? These are much, that's a much harder problem to deal with. I just feel like I, I brought you in here to gut you. <laughs> I, this is so brutal. What is, <laughs> I didn't. I forgot. Why do how, you hate me? I don't hate you. I'm quite fond of you. That's why you're our first guest. <laughs> I'm just. I, um, here's where it gets a little hopeful. It is a little dark. But give me your thoughts on that, and I'll start turning it for you. Oh, into you're... into a more ho- hopeful place what what is that what would what, what does that make you think of because that's an interesting point right if you don't we've we've this is where i'm getting into the whole thing about the industrial revolution right we're in a place right now with automation society is going to change completely in a way in in the same way that agrarian society the transition from an agrarian society to an industrialized society right Agrarian being agricultural, where you um, your life is defined by farming, and how much of that was was that a change for from hunter gatherer, right? Mm. When when we developed agrarian societies, people could develop uh, could specialize in things. 
they weren't just hunter gatherers. They well, were... that's what my grandparents were farmers well into the nineties. Oh, when really? They passed away. Yeah. So oh. this whole idea wow. of moving into the industrialization is for me. Yeah. Well, a bit <laughs> strange. Well, but then what? I guess what is being talked about here is that this is like a new stage of hyper-industrialization, where right. where it's not going to be based. It's not that Fordist model. These protesters that are not happy with the Fordist model are actually kind of right because there is no going back to that model. So what's going to end up happening to people, according to Silicon Valley, Wall Street's definitely not down with this shit. But what these guys are proposing, and I think to some degree because they have some level of guilt in their responsibility in <laughs> in compounding the problem, right? They see the world through this idea of like, oh, people are going to all become philosophers, right? I mean, he that's basically one of the things that I love about that clip of Elon Musk. He's basically a philosopher billionaire. <laughs> he's going like, how will people have meaning? He's, he's an existentialist almost, right? When you are no longer defined by your labor, where do you get meaning from life, Sue Ellen? And I know you love your job. Because <laughs> I know you work hard. <laughs> <laughs> but how is this meant to solve anything for any... I mean, how much... This is not a lot of money we're talking about. This and is a basic income. A universal basic income would cover your basic living expenses. It would raise you beyond the poverty line. So, but that would have to be so substantial. Yeah. That is the point. So what he's saying is that with progress... With, with automation will come abundance. So everything is going to be super fucking cheap to make because you don't have to pay people for it, right? But the person responsible for that is just going to let all that income go to all of these people for free? Well, that's where we're getting... That, that, that's where this... That, that's <laughs> that's wh never, ever, ever going to happen where it's going to be enough income for the anybody. Well, okay, so what... Because That's, somebody is always going to be keeping as much as they can for themselves. So, but that always hasn't that hasn't always been the case, right? After the Second World War, there was a more socialist push. So it's you, right. No, power has always been the case. Not necessarily. I mean, you don't think so? I think that what I guess what. I've made you bitter. <laughs> I'm so angry you, at you. And you're not you following me into this hot room <laughs> to talk politics. Um, okay, what, back uh, going back to this clip, what he is basically what he is saying, which I think is an interesting thing, and you and I don't think you're wrong. I think that this is definitely falls under the category of pipe dream, but it is something that is being tested. Right, so there are pilot projects to see how this affects people. Where? And well, there's one. There's one from this one guy that got fired by. Um, I free, I wish I I had the notes from another episode that I we're gonna be doing, but that that are already ready. But basically, this guy that stole trade secrets from Google self-driving cars and took them to another company or some shit like that. Uh, and got fired for it and then started a new religion which has an artificial intelligence god. <laughs> In Palo Alto? 
something like that. Yeah. So I'm basically saying that these guys in Silicon Valley have this really fucking different worldview and they, they do sort of see how the, where the world is headed in a way that we may not be ready for. Right. So actually, when we say that they're taking over San Francisco in a very undesirable way, they're kind of doing what people in San Francisco were actually doing in the 60s. To some degree, I think that they're they're not. It's I am absolutely not vouching, by the way. No, no, no. I get no. And it's you're not wrong. It, It there is there is this weird idealism. Right. And it's it, it like that's why I say he's a philosopher billionaire because he's basically has all this wealth and he's like um, just giving these ideas of how the world should work and and what he's saying is a reality right he's not saying that this is something that I wish will happen this is something that he thinks will happen. Whether he's right or wrong is debatable because there are a lot of forces in the world pushing in many different directions. But this idea of individualism, right, this negative sense of freedom of like, you can't stop me from having guns or, um, right, this idea of don't encroach on my rights. Mm -hmm. Get off my lawn. Get off my lawn. Exactly. It's... He, the Silicon Valley is driving the culture in a very powerful way. All of the machines that we use, all of they have more of our information. Wall Street doesn't have our information to the same degree that Silicon Valley does. So they have really important information, as we saw from the Cambridge Analytical, uh, Analytical scandal, right? And so what Elon Musk is saying here, and I'm not a fucking... I mean, the guy's kind of a weirdo, right? He says that, uh, Elon Musk says that there's a possibility that we're living in a simulation. And I'm like, yeah, of course you think that because you're winning the fucking video game, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, but as an industrialist and the fact that so many people from Silicon Valley are seeing this wave of automation taking over whether or not it's actually true it's interesting because what he is saying is he's he's saying this is not something that i want to happen but this is something that i think is actually going to happen because this force of development that's happening right the singularity coming where technology makes us all completely irrelevant and i and this is the existential loop that i think is interesting here right um the loop is that we're going to get to a point where companies need people to buy things so they can exist. But companies need to also be taxed to give people the money to buy these things. So it's this dependence loop that's really interesting. And so what he's saying is, where will you get your meaning as a human being? Because a lot of people derive their meaning from labor. For generations, we've been defined by this Fordist model of our labor, and even before that, but our labor is our meaning. When we trade our labor for money, that is, I'm a this, I'm a that, right? Whereas we're leaving that, and more and more people don't have that. Right, isn't that the first question that anyone asks when you go on dates? Yeah, exactly, what do you do? Yeah. Yeah, and so... Um, so what he's saying is that 
where the, the was is that the precariat the precariacy is going to boom right people the members of the precariat people how many people have you known that just had to leave california during the 2000 2008 crash how many people fell into the precariacy a lot right that's when all of a sudden we realized like oh the american dream is very different and we're there's a there there's there are market bubbles in everything there are market bubbles in in the uh, in the stock market in re- real estate and all of these things right and so a lot of people like how many people seriously do you know anybody that used to live in LA they fucking lost their job randomly and no then, i feel like everybody's coming here now it's the opposite yeah, everybody's coming to LA because, because it's we're affordable. In a bubble. Because we're in a bubble. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's why I came to LA. I yep. left San Francisco for LA. Yeah, because what, of San this Francisco fear is getting, of... getting so expensive. Yes, yes. And okay, this fear so of... you are precarious. No, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, you have job security, but that's what I'm saying. Like there are the the stratification of 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 uh, cultures. Like there are now two cities in this country that are inaccessible to people: New York. And San Francisco. But LA is it's right coming. Yeah, it. it's coming up, right? Yeah. And just by living in this neighborhood, I'm fucking it up, right? Yes. Because I am an artist. Yeah. Is that my fault, though? Yeah. That I bring property value. <laughs> well, according to protesters yeah. locally, then yes, you are the problem. No, and, and they're not necessarily wrong. No. But I still got to exist, right? And so, so it's an interesting thing. But... What this next step goes beyond all of the like all of these arguments, what these what what Elon Musk is essentially saying is that all of these arguments are basically irrelevant because we're all going to lose our jobs. Everybody, everybody, low and high, low and high algorithms like I mean, creative people don't already getting fucked. Can we brainstorm what would be the things that are irreplaceable by artificial intelligence? Probably not very much. Nothing. No. Nothing. A lot is not is is replaceable. What about artists? That's where we get into this thing, right? So, where where do we find our meaning when our labor is not? So, do we? Is all everyone become, going to become an artist? An artist or a philosopher right. or a thinker, yeah. right? Because you have all this idle time. <laughs> it's an interesting. But are we thing. going to have idle time? Well, we're not going to define ourselves by work, according to Mr. But we're not going to have enough money to survive. I mean, what could this income possibly provide us in the... Well, it's just a basic income. Then you have opportunities to do other things. Like what? What other things are there? Make a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) A robot could do that. I don't know. (laughs) But you get what I'm saying? Like, I... I, What is it, it... Basically, what he's saying is that we're getting into this new indu- new new phase of the industrial revolution where there is no proletariat anymore. There are people there. All right, there are always going to be some people with jobs, but mass unemployment is a reality that's coming in a at a scale that we've never ever seen. And so, how will the average human being that can't find a job? define their existence so there's going to be this whole cultural shift this whole shift in humanity in the way that they perceive themselves that is going to be fucking jarring (laughs) so 
Any thoughts? I hate you. <laughs> anyway. Go on to your next page. What do you have? What got, else do you have research I've got two pla- pages. I would like to know You're going to fucking hate this last part. Uh. <laughs> okay. And again, this is not necessarily what's going to happen because you've got Wall Street pushing in one direction. You've got healthcare pushing in one direction. All of these things. But... Our basic opinions don't fucking matter compared to these ideas that people are having, right? And so let me give you uh, a quote from a book. I know I've talked about libertarian uh, neoliberals, but I'm not attacking them. I am just trying to give us some perspective as to where we are in the world right now, right? And I actually am a I I have nothing bad to say about Hillary Clinton, okay? trigger warning i'm going to talk about her and her book what happened and i just want and and the only reason that i'm bringing her up is not to like i don't like to go after politicians or 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 support politicians on this show unless they're trump or marco rubio (laughs) fair game (laughs) unless they're completely comical i by the way i love that you've just taken over that mic. You're just holding it in your hand. It's you're so comfortable. You're like you're like you you know what motherfucker. You're gonna do this to me. I'm gonna get cozy. <laughs> All right. I just don't like not being able to see your eyes while oh, we're talking oh. about things. It's I've not just gotten central. used to looking at Seth's empty eyes. <laughs> <laughs> no, Seth and I have developed a really good posture on the show. Uh, and it's different to this, you're saying? No, because no. we didn't realize we could just grab the mic. <laughs> you can actually move it off of the table, yeah, people. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. You just, like, blew on our fucking minds. All right. So here's the quote from her. Before I ran for president, I read a book called With Liberty and Dividends for All, How to Save Our Middle Class When Jobs Don't Pay Enough by Peter Barnes, which explored the idea of creating a new fund that would use revenue from shared national resources to pay for di- uh, to pay a dividend to every citizen, much like how the Alaska Permanent Fund distributes the state's oil royalties every year. So that's another market socialist system within our own country in Alaska. Does that happen? That happens all the time. Yeah, they they get they get money for uh, oil money in Alaska. Who? The citizens. Mostly dudes, because I don't think there's a lot of women in Alaska. My niece goes to college in Alaska. Maybe she gets them. Or she might not be a resident. Maybe it might have to do with that. Or no, wait. She's my cousin's kid. She's not my niece. But anyway. Completely irrelevant. (laughs) Digression. Unnecessary. (laughs) All right. Shared national resources include oil and gas extracted from public lands and the public airwaves used by broadcasters and mobile phone companies. But that gets you only so far. Get this. If you view the nation's financial system as a shared resource, then you can start raising real money from things like a financial transaction tax. Same with the air we breathe and carbon pricing. So she's proposing not only to tax our resources, but to also tax financial institutions, which would be Wall Street. Do you think they're down with that? But are we going to be taxed on this after our basic entitled income? Oh, yeah. Everybody gets taxed. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I skip that part? No, but how does how do taxes work with the... Yeah. Everybody gets taxed. Everybody. Some people have more money 
and then from those taxes, everybody gets reimbursed. So even if you have the basic income, you're get you're paying taxes on that income, right? It's a redistribution of wealth system. Okay. So, so some people get taxed more. Everybody gets taxed. Some people get taxed more, and then how do you decide who gets taxed what in this new system? Uh, that's a good question, right? <laughs> this is all, all all theoretical at this point, it, it, unless you're doing you like there are obviously. Well, in this case, in the one that uh, Hillary Clinton is proposing in her book, What Happened, uh, it would be things like it would be market socialism. So it wouldn't be tax. We would be taxing. Well, I guess to some degree you would have to nationalize things like oil, right? I don't understand. Actually, I don't know how Alaska does that. That's a good question. Um, because I don't think that. Alaska's oil is nationalized, but they still make a, a, a revenue from that. They still get their... And that goes to the population. Yes. People get money from the oils. From the oils. <laughs> I the sound oils. Really, <laughs> I sound really smart right now. But through filing their taxes. Through the state, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, anyway... Once you capitalize the fund, you can provide every American with mo with a modest basic income every year. Besides cash in people's pocket, it would also be a way of making every American feel more connected to our country and to one another. Part of something bigger than ourselves. I was fascinated by this idea, as, my, as was my husband. And we spent weeks working with our policy team to see if it could be viable enough to include in my campaign. We would call it Alaska for America. Unfortunately, we couldn't make the numbers work. To provide a meaningful dividend each year to every citizen, you'd have to raise enormous sums of money. And that would either mean a lot of new taxes or cannibalizing other important programs. We decided it was exciting but not realistic and left it on the shelf. That was the responsible decision. I wonder now whether we should have thrown caution to the wind and embraced Alaska for America as a long-term goal and figured out the details later. So... This is an interesting thing, right? Because this is a person that's got donors on both sides. She's got donors in Silicon Valley and donors in Wall Street. But the majority, I would say, of her income is probably coming from Wall Street. Right? Yeah. She's got Chuck Schumer raising funds for her and all of that. And so it's... But they'll be replaced. Who's going to be replaced? Chuck Schumer. Is he? By a robot. By Aruba. A, ro a robot. Oh, uh, by a robot. Oh, <laughs> that actually still is good news. <laughs> Aruba, I wish. <laughs> I'd love to see a robot. Aruba just is going to rise. I just thought that was someone's name. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I just think this is an interesting thing because this is a politician that is 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 trying to... You know, and all of them do that. She's playing ball, right? And that's why we respect her as a politician. She knows how the game works, and she doesn't sugarcoat it for us, uh, like maybe some of the more demagogic populists <laughs> that tell <laughs> us that that coal is going to come back. But at the same time, she's also not for universal health care. She's also not for fifteen dollar minimum wage. I don't know. If, well, actually, I don't know what her stances are now during the campaign. That was the platform, right? Um, so it's just an interesting, like, 
I really like looking at what drives these people because if you're going to be doing that voting for the lesser of two evils which i have my issues with um you know as someone who lived in florida for a long time uh it it was very hard to lose a lot of elections (laughs) or to be on the losing side of two george w bush elections and when um you know when obama was voted in. I lived in California. (laughs) (laughs) No glory for you. Yeah. So I didn't get any credit for him winning, but all of this, all of this shit is fascinating. You know, this idea that we're moving into this new phase where at any point, anybody that, you know, could just suddenly lose their job and not be employable again, because it's not a matter of that. There is something wrong with them, but the jobs are being lost because they don't exist anymore. Or, and it used to be because they were going to other places when the market flexibility, labor market flexibility came into play. But now it's just straight up. There are just not going to be any jobs. But if you don't have jobs and everyone receives the same stipend. Then you are freed up. The, the theory is then you are freed up to do other things, pursue other things. Like that's what uh, Zuckerberg pr- uh, try. Yeah, like find a new hustle to make the most of your situation. Yeah. And that's one of the things that was happening in that Namibia example. Right. In Namibia, in these villages, people were making surplus beyond what they were getting. It was just enough to make them survive. So it's an interesting idea. You, you, you know, it's not. But how far is that gap then between those who are exploiting what they have to make more? Well, it would be it would definitely close the gap because no one would be in abject poverty anymore. Right. The whole point, like a full basic income puts you above the poverty line. I just don't buy into the fact that they would ever pay anyone enough unless we unless there was some massive well here's here's the tricky thing right if you don't do it who buys the products the people well yeah so that's that's the fucking thing you just got it (laughs) (laughs) but yeah um i just saw that we blew out the fucking speakers but what a, what about the people who had the cash in their pockets from flipping houses and whatever from before the before times? They're going to get taxed under this new system and their empires will be equalized and their wealth will be. De- but they won't because they'll fight that and they have the money and the power. So that will never happen. Yeah, but rob- robots are going to be building their houses. Mm. <laughs> right. Houses are going to be 3D printed. Do we pay the robots? No, we buy the robots. Mm. The robots are are the ideal slave. Right? You don't owe them shit. They're, they are legitimately property without dehumanizing them. So it is the fucking wet They will dream. find a way to rise up. Oh, absolutely. That's a different <laughs> episode. But you get what I'm saying? Like, this is... It, um, it might actually... At some point, I mean, maybe I'm being naive and hopeful, but maybe we won't need a military or a prison industrial complex, right? Because it'll be cheaper than (laughs) putting people in prison to fucking buy a robot. Yeah. 
So it's it's just I'm not saying I understand any of this shit. This is just a conversation about uh, things that I'm reading, <laughs> and I don't know the answers. But it's fascinating. The idea of humanity having to redefine its purpose is just mind blowing to me. Quickly, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's happening now. And so right now it's this. It's we have a, a like what what. Um, what Guy Standing says is that Guy <laughs> is that uh, that he is that that <sighs> these people are angry right now. We're in the middle of this transition, and nobody has given these people a solution. And so that's why we're getting Trumps, and that's why we're getting Brexits because people are disenfranchised to a fucking degree where they're not just they're they're not part of society anymore and this is a global that's why these protests are global this is a global class structure national class structures are fragmented now anybody from a third first world country can fall into this precarious situation uh, this precarious situation this state of living that is psychologically straining because you don't know if you're going to be able you know how exhausting is that to not fucking know where your next bit of money is going to come from so yeah anyway you're done you can leave now <laughs> i'm sorry for for doing this to you <laughs> are you mad at me for real yes are you seriously mad? yes very mad are you serious <laughs> Hey, if you want to follow us on Instagram or tweet at us, we are at What's My Thesis, at Seth Lauer, and at Javier Proenza. And if you have any interesting Dream Journal entries, we'd love to read them on the show. You can send those to What's My Thesis at gmail.com. <laughs>